next, we're going to listen to another great interview from the Rattlebag Archive. The late Anthony Mangella was a true gentleman. He met Kay Sheehy in 2001 when he was in Dublin to talk about his involvement in the Beckettum film project in which he directed play, starring Kirsten Scott Thomas, Juliet Stevenson and Alan Rickman. Pleasant, engaging and bright, Mangella left behind a rich body of work. Truly Madly Deeply, The English Patient, The Talented Mr Ripley and Cold Mountain, to name but a few. His radio play Cigarettes and Chocolate won the Prix Italia in 1988. In 2008, he passed away at the age of 54. Among many other things, he spoke to Kay about growing up in Ride in the Isle of Wight and working in the family ice cream business. My father and mother had a cafe in the high street in Ride and it butted on to a cinema called the Commodore and we had we shared a couple of quite grim cottages at the back of our shop which uh, were let out for various purposes and in one of them lived the projectionist from the cinema and so in fact I recently had lunch with Giuseppe Tonatore and made Cinema Paradiso and we we swapped stories about our, our, our histories of cinema going and in fact the the Vernon who was the projectionist used to let me in the back of the Commodore and um, so I saw a lot of films that way, but I, I'd be lying to you if I said they were particularly significant movies or significant experiences. Um, but my my most uh, um, fixing memories of that cinema were twofold. One was Saturday morning pictures, where just because all your friends went and you saw these these episodic films, you know, back next week and whatever they were, they were I think pretty terrible. But we'd always show up and see them each Saturday. The equivalent because there wasn't. That, that equivalent on television at the time. And, and the other thing was that because my father had the ice cream um, franchise for the cinema, I was going and serving ice cream in the intervals, you know, holding so the awful thing of putting on a yellow coat and a tray and, um, and selling tubs. So I, I didn't have a very glamorous cultural upbringing. Most, most of my um, early life was spent in some unhappy relationship with an ice cream scoop. And so, therefore, would your influences have maybe been more literary? No, no, they were exclusively non-literary. I mean, I, mean, I think that, that most of my childhood was preoccupied with um, extremely banal things, with uh, playing football, trying to escape my father's clutches, um, chasing Swedish girls who arrived every summer for their holidays. And, and um, I don't think I really had read much by the time I went University. I was very mostly interested in music. I played a lot of music. I wrote a lot of music. And if you, if I were coming in here at the age of seventeen, and you were asking me what my future was, I would say exclusively in the world of music of composing. And um, was there a sense that you were looking at the world as as um, the, the Rip, your Ripley character in Mister Ripley? Absolutely. I mean, I, there was a there was a very significant. Uh, event that happened to me, which now sounds terribly commonplace in the rehearsing of it, but when I was 17 or so, I was delivering ice cream for my dad in our delivery van and driving along. And the, and the Isle of Wight was a, is is predominantly a very poor place. Maybe 85 or 90 percent of the population are agriculturally in you know occupied or with the tourist industry. And around the edges, since Victoria's time of living there has grown up this extremely wealthy core of people who come down for the summers. And, and because of the, the sort of tradition of sailing in the Royal Yacht Squadron, it's still visited each summer for a few weeks by the 
the well-heeled and the beautiful. And I remember this particular day driving along on a delivery and seeing these two gorgeous young people, of my, I guess of my age, um, a girl and a boy, very suntanned, with the sweaters flung around them and their deck shoes, and they had their thumbs out, so I slowed down to give them a ride, and they got into the van. And it was one of those bench seats, so we were all sort of squashed up in the front of this van, and I was driving, and I said, well, where can I take you to? And they said, we don't care, we're just sort of thinking what it's like to hitchhike with a local. And uh, I felt so humiliated, they were just having a bit of... You know, they could say that they'd breathe the same oxygen as a as a yokel. Um, and I felt very conscious of being a second-rate, second-class person. And uh, that was a very, very uh, ripply moment for me, this experience that you're, you're on the outside of something, you'll never be admitted. Dickie Greenleaf? Who's that? It's Tom. Tom Ripley. Tom Ripley? We were at Princeton together. Okay. Did we know each other? Hello. Uh, well, I knew you, so... I suppose you must have known me. Princeton's like a fog. America's like a fog. <laughs> this is Marge Sherwood. Um, sorry, what is it? Ripley. How do you do? How do you do, Marge? What are you doing in Manji? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing much. Just passing through. You're so white. <laughs> do you ever see a guy so white, Marge? <laughs> Gray, actually. It's just an undercoat. <laughs> Say again? <laughs> you know, a primer. <laughs> in subsequent years, um, the Isle of Wight's been very good to me, and I'm the freeman of the Isle of Wight, sort of honorary relation to the island, and I went back to give a talk recently at the Royal Yacht Squadron, and it, it was just particularly ironic for me because it was the first time I'd ever been allowed in the front door because I, in the past I'd had to go in the tradesman's entrance, so there was a sort of small, ripply moral victory there. And... Is that, was that awareness of class from a young age something that you would have invested into the talented Mr Ripley? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way to go to work as a filmmaker without personalising the material. You know, it has to be about the material having been mediated by your sensibility. And I th the reason I wanted to do Ripley is because I identified so much with the character, not with somebody who wants to, to kill people or to exchange, but the idea of reimagining yourself, of making yourself up, was at the heart of Ripley because it was at the heart of my entire life, really, was to try and find some way of escaping from the person I felt I was elected to be to the person I wanted to be, which I don't think is particular to me or to being an immigrant, or I think it's true of all of us. We're all trying to shuffle the cards that were dealt and, and, and make a better hand. You would have started your creative life in the theatre, in, in both studying theatre and producing and writing plays. Would that have started at college? I wrote a... I talked to her about being interested in music and I I wanted some excuse to present my music in the theatre in Hull when I was studying. I had a wonderful time, a wonderful and, and important time. I was lucky enough to go to a department which had just started. There was one of the very few places which was offering a degree in theatre. But I wanted to make music. That was my job when I was in the department. I wrote incidental music for nearly all the plays that were done there. And um, But I couldn't find any armature to, to justify this. So I found a little story and I adapted the story as an excuse to thread this series of songs I'd written together. And oddly and unexpectedly, the result of this evening that I made was that I was offered a commission by the local theatre to write a play. And so I stumbled, as I seem to have done in my entire life, I stumbled into 
uh, an opportunity and discovered that that was really the place I belonged. Part of the gift of being at that university at that time was I, I feel I was a bit of a lost cause when I arrived there, and it was discovering, first of all, language and literature and also the fact that I liked the life of the mind, which is something I'd never really thought about before, that you could actually be nourished by your inner being and not simply by what was going on outside of you. And you would have worked then in television. Was that a good experience? Was it a learning experience, or did you get that intellectual stimulation from it? I had a fantastic time. I, I mean, I feel, that again, that I was terribly lucky that I started writing in a period in British post-war British history. I mean, the... Uh, I suppose this would be from the beginning of the 80s I started writing, where there was lots of studio theatres commissioning plays. There were You could get plays on the radio, which was very, very important to me. The, one of the best experiences I had was doing a series of plays for Radio 3, Radio 4. And also the, the BBC was still rather adventurous in the kind of drama it was doing. And so I felt like I had the opportunity to experiment with lengths, with types of writing for, you know, 10 years, really. To, to, to learn about what it was to be involved in, in, in uh, uh, dramatic work. And so uh, I felt that, that um, in a way that I think is much more difficult for writers now to find the outlets for their work, I had a wonderful series of opportunities, a lot of support, before I started directing at the end of the 80s. When I came to London, I went to London in 1981, um, and I had no money, and I had a commissioned to write a play, which was eventually actually done by the Druid Theatre, a play called A Little Light Drowning, which was about my Dublin-based grandfather. And I happened to bump into somebody who said that they were looking for a script editor to script edit Grinch. It, it, it was a marvellous opportunity for two reasons. One was the producer of that series, uh, alas, now dead, but one of the great people in my life, a man called Kenny McBain, helped me and taught me a great deal. He persuaded me to do my first adaptation. He bought a book called The Dead of Jericho, by Colin Dexter, and he said, would you adapt this for me? It's got this very strange policeman um, called Inspector Morse. And um, so I found myself initiating this, what became a very popular series because of Kenny. Also was involved in metabolising 150 episodes of Grand Chill, so I actually saw these screenplays come in, the scripts of Grand Chill come in and quickly get turned around and broadcast and... It taught me, I mean, what a fantastic experience for a would-be writer just to see how things, you know, you, you read a script on Friday and it's in front of you on Tuesday and you're seeing what's great and what's not great and what works and what doesn't work. Did you have a big input into Morse? Big only insofar, I mean, for instance, I made a terrible mistake. The, the, the commission was originally to write it over two nights because that was, at the time, the popular idea of how a series should work, that it would be part one on Monday and part two on Tuesday. And I didn't know how to do that, and so my adaptation didn't have a proper break in the middle, so they thought they'd do one as a two-hour special, and that became the more slot. So through my inadequacy, a sort of new convention <laughs> arrived at that time. Um, and because I'd spent a lot of time in universities and because my in my mind... Morse was, was a, a Philip Larkin character who'd been the librarian when I was teaching at Hull. Uh, the sensibility of Morse, I think, was traduced through that you know, prism of, of Larkinism and that sort of old fogeyism that, that he promoted, coupled with an enormously fine sensibility. That's what seemed to be most appealing about Larkin, was the, um, the grunt and, and the grace simultaneously, and that seems to be the, the quality of Morse. So insofar as that found its way into the screenplay insofar as the the Kevin Waitley character was something which was really developed in the course of that first 
film. Yes. And were you at that stage dying to make a film? What happened, which is sort of typical of my, uh, really, of my true personality, which is entirely cowardly, is that every year the Morse group would come to me and say, could you write one next year? And I would say no. And they would say, you've got to. And I'd say, I can't. I want to do my own work. And finally, they knew that I was quite preoccupied with the idea of directing something, so they offered me the chance to direct a Morse. And in the same week, Robert Cooper, who's now working as a very significant producer in Ireland, called me. He was at the BBC with Mark Shivers, and they called and said, we're starting BBC Films. Would you like to write a screenplay for us? And I said, sure, I'd love to, but, you know, I'd been offered the chance to direct a Morse, and so I'm considering that. And they came back and said, well, why don't you direct the screenplay? And because I thought that the BBC film, which had a tiny budget, I thought, well, nobody will see this, so I could screw up and nobody would find out. And because at that time Morse was being watched by more you know, than, more viewers than on any other pro- dramatic programme, and I thought if I screwed up there, everybody would find out. And, and I thought I'd opt for the, the less complex and less ambitious of the two things, and I'd made Truly Maddie Deeply rather than an episode of Inspector Morse. And that, that decision, born out of cowardice, completely changed my life, I think. When it came to the English patient, did you think of maybe directing your own work or did the English patient, was it just something that you were passionate about making? Yeah, there was no plan. I mean, I didn't ever imagine I'd be a director of somebody else's work and I don't think I'd ever now direct a screenplay written by somebody else. But I loved that book and I thought that there was so much room in the book for my own version because there is no story in the novel. Michael Landace, who who's become one of my best friends, we would sit for hours and I'd say, tell me the story, what's the story of the English patient? He'd say, oh, I don't know. And he, he was much more interested in the images in the book. You know, it was very ironic. You know, the, the proper discussion between a director and a novelist ought to be the novelist being the proprietor of the story and the director being the proprietor of the images. In fact, it was absolutely the reverse in the English patient. I would always be trying to force a story into this arena of poetry. Mrs. Clifton, I'd like to present Count Dolmashi. Hello. Geoffrey gave me your monograph and I was reading up on the desert. Very impressive. Thank you. I wanted to meet the man who could write such a long paper with so few adjectives. <laughs> a thing is still a thing, no matter what you place in front of it. Big car, slow car, chauffeur-driven car. Broken car. Still a car. Not much use, though. Love. Romantic love. Platonic love, filial love, quite different things, surely. Uxoriousness, that's my favourite kind of love. Excessive love of one's wife. Now, there you have me. (laughs) And after I made The English Patient, oddly enough, I made a vow I would never do another adaptation, then immediately did Ripley. And then after Ripley, I made a real promise that I wouldn't do another adaptation, and now I'm doing Cold Mountain, which is an adaptation of Charles Fraser's book. So I'm obviously um, maybe out of a lack of confidence in doing something of my own or just simply that I'm a tart, you know, and I fall in love with projects and want, can't bear the thought of somebody else doing them. So I, so I sort of cling to the raft of a good read or whatever the reasons are, um, I find myself in this uh, period where I'm doing a lot of adaptation. I hope it's only a period and not a life sentence. The writing and the directing, are they happy bedfellows when, you, when you're both... Yeah, I mean, to me, there's, there's, uh, I can't, having become a director, I can't imagine somebody stopping me directing, but I'm a writer, you know, and so the writing precedes everything for me. And I would be, I don't think I'd be a particularly good director of somebody else's material. 
You know, that's a very particular skill to be able to interpret somebody else's writing. I don't think I have that. I think what's particular to me is the fact that I'm a writer who writes as a filmmaker. And so the two things now don't seem to be two jobs. They seem to be one, one job only. And when it goes into editing then, is that still writing? It, absolutely. I mean, you have, you have a pen, which is a pen literally when you're writing, a pen that becomes a camera when you're shooting, and a pen that sharpens into a razor blade when you're cutting. You know, it's, it's, no, it's, it's one activity. You're remaking... You know, Walter Murch, who is the editor I work with, who's a marvellous man and a teacher as well for me, he said to me once, you know, the film that you have in the cutting room is not the film you hoped you'd make, it's the film you have made. And so you have to revisit the material and, and confront what you've collected rather than what you were dreaming about. And then this marvellous thing happens in the cutting room when you're back in a room by yourself writing again. You're writing, but your sentences are now film sentences and you can discard, you can reimagine, you can... You know, it's a, the, the cutting room is the most alchemic arena it's the most mysterious place because you can end up with a profound uh, um, juxtaposition of images which were never intended to be against each other but which are there because you had a focus on the film they're not accidental and so the, there are mysteries in the cutting room which are very hard to explain but are are worth going through all the travails of shooting to arrive at and where do you leave Charles Fraser and Michael Andacci? When can you leave them behind in terms of making the project your own? You know, when you shoot a film, it is very hard to explain, but it's, I know it to be true. Every single thing you're doing every second of every day is personalising material. Where the camera looks, the lens that you're using, the height of the lens, the choice of actor, the light... Um, the length of the shot, the speed the camera is moving is all about you, whether you want it to be or not. You can't avoid your taste, the tyranny of your sensibility. You can try and flee from it. You can try and copy other people. There is absolutely no doubt that the thousand decisions you make each day are to do with you and not to do with Charles Frazier, to do with Michael Andache. And so whether you think you are kneeling at the shrine of a novel, kneeling at the shrine of an author, in reality what you're doing is speaking yourself about this material and speaking about how it relates to you and what, what it says to you personally. So when I choose to leave Michael and Dutch or Charles Frazier is irrelevant. I, I try never to leave them, but I'm leaving them with every single decision. And I think the important thing is to try and maintain a relationship throughout the film with all your collaborators, particularly with the person who's created the source material, to try and make sure that your course, which you are responsible for steering, is not entirely wayward. So with Michael Andache, for instance, he was in the cutting with me on the last day. He read every page of every draft because I felt he was more informed than anybody about our voyage. But he can't sail the boat. I have to, and I have to take the, the credit for that and I have to take the blame for it. You mentioned Druid and A Little Light Drowning. Will you tell us the story of your grandfather and the connection with Ireland? Uh, my grandfather, who, who's preoccupied me throughout my adult life, whom I met a couple of times only. I met him once he came to the Isle of Wight and gave me seven and six and we bought the SS Canberra at Woolworths, a little model of the SS Canberra. I remember that. And I remember also, I hope my parents forgive me for the story, I remember taking up a cup of tea to my grandmother in her bedroom and there was a man in her bed and I went downstairs, I was probably seven or eight and I said to my mother, why, why is that man staying in my grandmother's bed? And he said, well, it's your grandfather, so why can't he stay in his own bed? 
and I was very put out that this man seemed to have moved in with my grandmother. And uh, that was my grandfather, and he, he was an extraordinary man. He was a very um, charismatic and entirely unreliable person, and he left my grandmother when she had three very small daughters, and she was Italian and he was Italian, but she, you know, she was very isolated, and he fell in love with an Irish woman, and he came and settled in Dublin, somewhere around very close to the studio, I think. Um, and uh, he spent his entire adult life you know, promising he'd come back. And my grandmother, who was the most important person in my life, um, who looked after me when I was a child, would tell me these stories and would always maintain he was on his way back. And so this returning man who came back actually, I think, a few times to give away his daughters at their weddings in suits that were hired for the weekend, so he had to return to Dublin immediately after the ceremonies, um, was a very significant male role model, I suppose, in the sense not that somebody wanted to pursue, but just in terms of what I learned about the way men could be and the way they behaved. And my grandmother, who was caught in this, I think, ultimately very destructive love story with him, um, but she was a marvellous, marvellous woman, an extraordinary person. She was about four feet tall and had the language. She'd learned English by running a, a cafe in the Gorbals in Glasgow, so she had the, 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 she spoke English like a navvy. Um, it was a very colourful recipe, and she was a very colourful woman, and she never stopped loving him. Um, and she told me she would, we used to go for walks in the morning on the, on the shore, on the beach and ride, and she would tell me about the way the world works in terms of men and women, and it was, of course, an incredibly distorted sensibility and understanding, but it was very important to me, very mixed up with Catholicism and... We would go up to the church in the morning. and um, But it was a rude Catholicism. It was much more like an Irish Catholicism or Italian Catholicism than what the English think of as Catholicism. It was a much more mediated, wry and wise um, spiritual upbringing I had, I think. Uh, just a final question on, on play again, your Samuel Beckett project. Did you feel in any way that maybe you shouldn't film it, that Beckett shouldn't be filmed? Not for a second, because I think that Beckett is no different from any other writer in that he writes plays, the plays are available for people to perform. Um, they're not hostage to one performance or one film version. This is not the definitive cycle of Beckett plays on film. It is a snapshot of you know, the way that the world, the, 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 the practising world of filmmaking is reacting to Beckett in the year 2000-2001. In 10 years' time, they could all be refilmed and they'd be completely different, and they survive this adaptation to film. I think what they might do, this, this sequence, because they'll find their, their... Beckett will find his way into a, sort of quite a large auditorium, as it were, of, of television and film, is they might spark some interest and revive some interest in Beckett as a writer. And I remember when I did The English Patient, one of the most marvellously satisfying things to me was not the success of the film, but walking into a bookshop book and seeing all of Michael Ondaatje's books reprinted, republished, repackaged, the excitement generated by the, uh, the, 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 the success of The English Patient took people back to his work as a writer. And I would hope that the, that the success or controversy or discussion generated by this Beckett season will return people to Beckett, not to Manson Mangaro or Neil Jordan or anybody else.